0: Please turn your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 8 with me, 1 Samuel chapter 8, as we continue to look at 1 Samuel and God's work among his people, as he calls a king, as the people demand a king there in 1 Samuel chapter 8, and they get a king like the nations, that's what we're looking at this morning. As you turn there, I have a couple things I want to draw your attention to. Uh, First of all, uh, we are partaking of the Lord's Supper this morning. We're going to be participating in in, uh, the Lord's Supper. Is that a little loud? Am I, or is that good? Everyone looks up. I wasn't even paying attention. Uh, Okay. (laughs) Is that good? Maybe I'm just hearing more back here. Okay, thanks. Uh, We're participating in the Lord's Supper this morning, and so I want to invite you to participate in that with us. If you are a believer, we encourage you to uh, be partaking of that as a part of the church, and if you're new to the church and aren't a member yet, you're still invited to participate in the Lord's Supper with us as you consider whether this is going to be your, your church home. Uh, when we stand in just a moment and, and uh, read God's word together, if you didn't grab uh, the elements of, of the Lord's Supper, you can grab those on the, the table back there and, uh, and be, able, be prepared to participate with us at the end of uh, the service. We do ask that you be a believer, that you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Also, if you're new to the church, as Blake mentioned, we would love to be able to continue to fellowship with you this morning at the newcomer lunch at 1215. We're going to give the kids some time to to get out of there, and and then we're going to go into the the gym and uh, participate in uh, a a fellowship after church. And uh, also, just want to encourage you to be watching your email. There's a, a couple things that your email will be. Uh, telling you in the next couple of days. In fact, I'm going to go ahead and ask, is the, is the live stream, we're going to go ahead and uh, cut the live stream. technology team back there. Thank you for doing that. And uh, we're looking at First Samuel chapter 8 as Israel demands a king. If you would just stand with me in honor of God as we read his word together. Verse 1 of First Samuel 8, when Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel and the name of his second Abijah, and they were judges in Beersheba. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them, according to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvests and to make his implements of war and the equipments of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks. And bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. You may be seated, may God encourage us through the reading of his word this morning. And Heavenly Father, we do ask for your your mercy this morning. We ask that your gospel would be proclaimed and we think about the the regions of our world that are, are hurting, that are in pain, that are suffering. We think about the loss of life In Turkey and Syria and that region and father we would ask that you and your kindness would allow uh, the the people who love you in those regions to to have great gospel opportunity to to seize that we pray that through the the means that you give them both both physical and spiritual they would be able to to help those that they love and help us to, to love the people who've been affected by this as well help us to be sensitive to your calling, to your Spirit's work, and we, we pray for uh, just your your kindness in, in your church and in that region. We pray for our own country. We, As Gene said, we pray for our leaders. We, we ask that you would give them wisdom. We pray that you would help them to uh, navigate very difficult situations with wisdom uh, so that your gospel may be proclaimed. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. I want to begin with a quote from a, a book that I've been reading. It's, the book is called "Powerful Leaders," "Powerful Leaders," and then kind of a question mark, "Powerful Leaders: When Church Leadership Goes Wrong and How to Prevent It." Uh, the book is by Marcus Honeysett, and and uh, I don't know everything about Marcus Marcus Honeysett. Uh, I know that he kind of has a, a broadly reformed background, but I, I don't know that. Uh, I don't know a lot of detail about him and his, his ministry, but, but what, I've, what I've seen, I've been encouraged by, but, but seen enough to know we're on the same page on every theological issue. But his, his book, Powerful Leaders, has, has this quote in it, and I, I want to start our morning with this. He says, wolves in sheep's clothing are dangerous. Wolves in shepherd's clothing are worse. So wolves in sheep's clothing are dangerous. Wolves in shepherd's clothing are even worse, and and he's right. So I read the book a week or two ago, just was really impressed by how well Honeyset seems to understand the evangelical church culture, how he understands leadership dynamics and the, the nature of oppressive leadership within a church, and it really kind of helped me process a lot of what I've seen in the evangelical church over the last few decades, and Appreciate the work that he's doing there. Now, the problem with oppressive leadership in the church is that it's not always clear-cut. I mean, sometimes it's very obvious. Okay, that that right there is oppressive leadership, and not to not to pile on. But you think of a very prominent example in the last couple of years of Mark Driscoll's ministry at Mars Hill, and you say, okay, that that was oppressive leadership. There's a very famous quote where. He was talking to a group, and it was right after, the, like the day after the church had removed two elders, and he said, uh, you know, he talked about stiff-necked, stubborn, obstinate people, and then he said these words. He says, there is a pile of dead bodies behind the Mars Hill bus, and by God's grace, it will be a mountain by the time we're done. You either get on the bus, or you get run over by the bus. Those are the options, but the bus ain't going to stop. Okay, oppressive leadership, right? No that's that's not a biblical sentiment right for a shepherd to have about other leaders that's that's not something you'll find in scripture as it describes godly leaders so some situations are like that okay that clearly is oppressive leadership some situations are less clear you think about in terms of, of leading a people you think about saul as we're going to encounter saul here in first samuel and and look at his life, there are going to be times where you're like, oh, that was a good thing that he did. And there's going to be times where you say, oh, that was a terrible thing that he did. And you're struggling. Okay, what type of guy is this guy, Saul? And and you see Samuel wrestle with that. Samuel obviously has a love for Saul, and and there's a great sorrow that Samuel has as Saul proves himself ultimately to be an oppressive leader. But then you you encounter a, a man like David, and you see David do some terrible things, and yet, still, be one who has a a heart after God's own heart. And sometimes, as you look at a leader, you're like, I, "I'm not sure if that's a Saul, or if if it's a David." There's a struggle. I think even it, it's very complicated sometimes. Uh, just this past week, I was reading some reports of a of a church where an elder came forward. And this is a very prominent evangelical church with a a leader whose teaching pastor, whose ministry I've been greatly influenced by, and this elder is coming forward and say, hey, we've really made some mistakes here, and the, the leadership isn't willing to, to change the teaching pastor. I, when I brought this to his attention, and the elder's attention, the, the teaching pastor told me to forget it, like, like let it drop, and she's so like, okay, what, what do I do with that? And the influence this church has, and, and I'm on the outside, I can't really tell what's going on. It's complicated sometimes, right? Well, here... In 1 Samuel 8, in these, these chapters we're gonna look at this week and then in, in two weeks, we see a king like the nations. We see Saul. The people want a king like the nations in the first eight chapters, and then in the, the rest of the book of 1 Samuel, we see what it looks like to get a king like the nations. This is not a king that points people to the covenant king. Now, David is going to be the king that's the the king of the covenant. He's the the king with whom God makes a covenant that one of his descendants will reign and have an everlasting reign. And, And that David's reign, and David is the covenant king, points us to the covenant king, the king of the new covenant, Jesus Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah. Saul does not do that, does he? Saul points the people to the world. He's a king like the nations, kings. And he doesn't point people to Yahweh, he points people to the world. Now, the goal for leaders for, for the leaders of God's people in the New Testament is the same as the goal for leaders in the Old Testament. and that goal, of course, is to point people to the Messiah. To point people to Christ, leadership and within the within God's people, within the, the church, I hope you would all agree with this statement. Leadership in the church should point people to Christ. I hope that's not comp. You know, I don't see anyone shaking their heads like I don't know about it. leadership within the church should point people to Christ. I hope we would all agree with that, and I hope we would also agree with this statement: believers who are in positions of leadership should exercise that leadership in such a way that they're pointing people to Christ, right? So it's not just leadership within the church, but Christian leaders should be exercising that leadership, not in an oppressive way like the nations, but in a way in which people are pointed to Christ. Here's the main idea that I want us to cover over the next few weeks, and i I, I made it in kind of two main ideas because uh, one idea is a little short and easier to remember. One idea, I think, kind of gets at what I'm trying to say a little bit better. But here's here's the main idea that I want us to think about. First of all, godly leaders point us to Christ. Worldly leaders do not. That's just kind of the, the simple statement, all right? Godly leaders are going to point us to Christ. They're going to point us to, to, to the Messiah. They're going to exercise leadership in a way that others understand who Jesus Christ is. It's, it's a self-sacrificing type of leadership, worldly leaders are not gonna do that. Now here's kind of the longer statement that I want us to think about. At the core, so at at the heart of worldly oppressive leadership is the conviction that leaders exist to be served instead of served by laying down their lives for others. So whenever you encounter a worldly oppressive leader, what you have at their heart is this conviction, I, I, I exist so that others will serve me. I exist so that, that others will, will do what, what is best for me, and they, they, they kind of cloak that in many different ways, and they, they kind of say it in different ways, and sometimes it's overt, sometimes it's a little more subtle, but at the, at the core of a worldly, oppressive leader, a person who's not exercising their leadership in a way that points to Christ, at the core is this conviction. My leadership has been given to me so that I will be served, not I've been given this position of leadership so that I can serve others. Now why are we talking about this well it's because it's in the text at the core of chapter 8 is is samuel's warning this is what a leader is going to do this this worldly leader you demand this type of leader you want this is what he's going to do and and this is the core. he's an oppressive leader we're going to talk about how over and over in the the text it says he's going to take he's going to take he's going to take he's going to take that's why we're talking about this now what do i hope we accomplish by doing this one I hope it prevents us from becoming worldly leaders to, to not be leaders like the nations. If if we end this morning and in two weeks and at the end of our time, all you can do is think about, yeah, I, there's some really bad leaders out there, then I will have failed, okay, in what I want us to accomplish. I, I hope, number one, that as we go through these things, we'll be convicted. Okay, this is where my heart is tempted in these areas to, to be an oppressive leader, to be a leader, a shepherd in my family or in my workplace, in, in the church. Here's my, where my heart is tempted to, to be served instead of served. So that's one purpose. Another purpose that I hope we have is, is to protect us as a church, to protect us at Bethany Community Church from creating structures and, and systems that encourage worldly leadership. Okay, so this is a this is a struggle that any church is going to be tempted towards. We we don't want to create structures at Bethany or encourage heart attitudes that would lead to this type of leadership. And then and then finally to help us recognize signs of oppressive leadership. So we're going to look at what type of leadership Saul or what type of leadership this this future king is going to have. And then we're going to say, okay, these are some characteristics of an oppressive leader. And as I by, you know, if God calls me out of Bethany Community Church. I don't want to just make sure that this church is protected, but as God calls me to other churches and other communities of faith, that I would I would ha- know what the warning signs are. Like, okay, when, when this exists, when I see these sort of patterns, these are some the things that I need to watch out for. So that's kind of our goal or our purposes as we go through this. I hope this doesn't make us arrogant, but it humbles us as we think about these things. And whether you're the bathroom monitor at school or the CEO of a company, I hope that you see how God would speak to you in these, in these principles over these next few weeks. So let's, let's dive in. Number one, uh, and, and we're looking at seven things about oppressive leaders that we see in these, these texts. And number one, an oppressive leader doesn't look to God's word to grasp the nature of his ministry. So an oppressive leader, a leader like the nations, doesn't look to God's word to grasp the nature of his ministry. Keep your finger there in 1 Samuel 8, and I want you to turn back to the book of Deuteronomy and turn to chapter, Deuteronomy of, uh, t- turn to chapter 17 of the book of Deuteronomy. Now, as, as, we, as we do that, what I want you to see is that this idea of a kingship isn't something that just kind of came out of thin air. God anticipated that his people would have a king, so, for example, as you turn there to Deuteronomy 17, let me read a couple passages to you. First of all, we see that a, a king was part of the Abrahamic blessing. In Genesis chapter 17, God tells Abram, I'm going to make you exceedingly fruitful. This is Genesis 17:6. I'm going to make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come fr- from you. In verse 16 of Genesis 17, I will bless her, moreover, I will give you a son by her, I will bless her, and she shall become nations, kings of people shall come from her. So that's God's promise to Abraham. And then you you come to Genesis 35, and as God changes Jacob's name to Israel, he says to him in Genesis 35, verse 11, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply, a nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. Israel's blessing then to his sons in Genesis 49. He prophesied that the scepter would not depart from Judah. So there's this coming king. Balaam in Numbers talks about the the kings who are going to come. And so we come to the book of Deuteronomy, and Deuteronomy envisions this future time when there will be kings. And we come to to Deuteronomy 17, And as we look at verses 14 through 20, we see that the problem that we encounter in 1 Samuel 8 is not that the people want a king. It's not bad to have a king. In fact, what it seems like in Deuteronomy 17, God is saying is, look, it's inevitable when there's a a group of people, there's going to be this political structure that takes place, and and there's going to be this king that's ahead of it, and that's part of God's common grace that, that people will organize and have this, these political structures, and a, a king can be a, a good thing. So let's look at this. The king, like the nations, in other words, a, a ruler isn't the bad part. It's, it's, it's something God-given, but it's possible to take something that God has given and pervert it. So here we are in Deuteronomy 17, and in verse 14, it says, When you come to the land that Yahweh, the Lord your God, has given you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around you, you may indeed set a king over you, okay? So it's okay as you, you come and you become this nation, you're in this place, and you say, look, I, I want to have a, a king. I want to have this political structure. God says that's, that's okay. It's good. So what's the problem? The problem, as we look at this passage in Deuteronomy 17, is that we see God's huge concern. His his huge concern is that the people will have a king who will draw them away from God instead of a king who will help them look forward to the Messiah. So look at what he says. Look what he goes on to say here in Deuteronomy 17. He says one that this king needs to be chosen by God. He says I will. He says it uh, needs to be a king. Verse 15, whom the Lord your God will choose. Furthermore, it has to be from among your brothers, so it, it has to be a, a fellow Israelite. He doesn't want a king that's going to worship other gods. He needs to be part of God's covenant people. He needs to also not be engaged in selfish self-centered leadership. It says he can't acquire many horses for himself. And it says in verse 17, he shall not acquire many wives for himself. And it says he shall not acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And so there, he says, I'm warning you, you don't want to have this king that's just going to be accumulating things for himself. And then furthermore, you don't want a king that's going to cause you to worship other gods. So horses for himself so that he goes to Egypt to get the horses, or Uh, acquires many wives for himself, and these wives turn his heart away from the Lord. So Yahweh's concern with the people is is not that they have a king, but he wants to have them a king, he wants to give them a king who will draw them closer to God, not a king who will draw them away from God. That's God's concern. And notice how else this manifests itself. Look at the text here in Deuteronomy 17. Look at what God says needs to take place in order to safeguard the monarchy. Verse 18. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him And he shall read it all the days of his life. Why? That he may learn to fear Yahweh, to fear the Lord his God by by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them. That his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers. And that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left. So that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. Here's what God wants this king to do. He wants this king to recognize he is in submission to, to the Lord his God and to go to God's word and say, okay, what, is, what am I supposed to do as king? I'm not gonna exalt myself over the people that you've given me. I'm going to look to you. You are our ultimate king, and I'm going to submit to you, and I'm going to serve the people, and I'm going to find out what your purpose is for me in this role by going to your word. Here's, here's the principle. A shepherd over God's people. Here's the principle. A shepherd over God's people must look to God's word to determine the purpose the scope and the nature of his ministry okay let me say that again the, the principle as we think about this this first thing is that a, a shepherd over God's people must go to God's word to determine the purpose of his or her ministry to de- determine the the scope and the method of the ministry that God has placed him or her in. So a mom, a teacher, a manager, whatever situation, a pastor, whatever situation God has placed you in as a shepherd, say okay, I need to go to God's word to determine the purpose, the scope, the method, all these things need to be derived from God's word. So for example, the purpose. An oppressive leader thinks that ministry exists for him or her to be exalted. And, and this gets really tricky, right? This gets really tricky. So for example, you're, you're a mom. And you say, you know what, my, my only prayer is that God's exalted in my kids' lives. Like that, that's a great statement. But but what do you really mean? My only prayer is, is that God is exalted in my kids' lives. You see where the emphasis is, right? Like, I'm cool with God being exalted as long as he's exalted in the way that I want him to be exalted and in a way that, that I kind of am lifted up as well, right? I'm I, God be exalted in my ministry, right? I, I'd like, as you're exalted, I'd like everyone to exalt me as well. Here's what John the Baptist realized John chapter three. There's this amazing passage where where John rightly recognizes that this type of thinking is is incompatible with true biblical ministry. John is is his ministry is declining. People are going after Jesus, and his disciples go like, "Hey, John the Baptist." They don't call him John the Baptist. Hey, John. Um, Jesus is, Jesus is getting more people than you. And, and what does John say? He says, look, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it's given him from heaven. You yourselves bear witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. And then what does he say? I He must increase, but I must decrease. That is the inevitable conclusion of every person who turns to God's word to understand the nature of their shepherding ministry. He must increase, I must decrease. God cannot be exalted if, if I am being exalted along with him. The inevitable result of good shepherding, of faithful shepherding, is this. The the shepherd is recognized as utterly unremarkable. The inevitable result of, of an effective shepherding ministry, if you're caring for other people, the inevitable result is people must recognize how utterly unremarkable you are. You're shepherding your kids. This happens earlier for some kids maybe than others, but your kids look at you and they go, huh, you're not that smart. You're just old. <laughs> Happened very early for my children, right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. The Same thing happens spiritually. Huh, Dad, you're not, you're not spiritually better than I am. You've just been receiving God's grace for a longer period of time. Yeah, that's right. If the people we're shepherding think that we're somehow better than they are, or somehow not in need of God's grace in the same way that they are, we have failed in, in understanding our purpose. We'll talk more about this in the weeks to come. Also, just just think this and keep this in mind too. The sphere that we look to God's word and say, okay, this is the appropriate area that I can speak into people's lives. So, with my with the people who are in my the workplace, I say, okay, this is the this is the appropriate area for me to speak into their lives. And 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 this is not beyond that is, is not the appropriate area. You know, think about some of you in, in companies where there's these incredible incredibly invasive software that's like tracking your every move right how often you're looking at the screen when you look away how much you're accomplishing and if the elders have done that to my computer I just want you to know that Wordle is part of my sermon preparation process uh no but it's it's incredibly invasive right and some of you are struggling with you what do I do with that and and we think about it in terms of our own leadership and In our kids' lives, and in the lives of the people that we're shepherding in the church. Okay, here's the area where God's word has commanded me to to speak with boldness and truth, and so I'm going to go that far, but you know what? I'm not going to go further. I'm going to look to God's word, understand the scope of my ministry, and understand the the methodology too, right? Scripture speaks a great deal about the method in which we do our ministry and exercise our authority, that patience, gentleness, firmness, perseverance— should all characterize our ministry. And, and think about this. As we think about the method and we look to Scripture to understand our method, your justification for doing what you are doing as a leader can't be, well, that's what all the other leaders do, right? I give myself this this great perk of leadership and, hey, you know what? Yeah, I'm doing that, but but that's what all the other leaders in my division do. That's what all the other people who are at my position of authority, that's what they do, so that's what I do too. Don't look to the nations. Don't look to the godless to model your ministry. Look to Christ. As I was preparing this sermon, I went on a couple of websites and looked at job descriptions and qualifications for pastors, and here's what some, of the, some, of the, some of the things that came up. Must be able to, to manage communication over multiple media venues. Must be able to articulate and promote the vision and mission of our church. Get approval for strategic vision and implementation. I don't even know what that means. Implement processes, manage church budget. Look, now none of those things are necessarily bad things to be able to do, but but none of those things are the biblical qualifications of what a pastor is to do. And uh, there is no problem with you know CEOs, right? We need godly CEOs, but. There's a tendency for the job description of a pastor in our culture to look more and more like the job description of a CEO. We want a a leader like the nations, a a leader like the secular world, and what's the problem with that? A CEO has certain metrics that they're using to judge the success of their performance, profitability, productivity, and so forth. Now, Christian CEO, you're gonna have some different methodology to look at, right? For a pastor, for a shepherd, the metrics we're judging the success of our ministry by must be significantly different. And here's what we're going to see as we go through this study. Misunderstanding the the purpose and methodology of ministry inevitably lead not to a shepherd, but to an oppressor. Misunderstanding the, the purpose, the methodology of ministry inevitably leads us not to a shepherd, but to an oppressor. Here's the second thing, second characteristic I want us to look at of an oppressive leader. Number two, an oppressive leader is sometimes the byproduct of a crisis colliding with an unbelieving heart, right? An oppressive leader, a a leader like the nations who who takes for themselves, is is sometimes the byproduct of this, this crisis in a culture, or in a community colliding with an unbelieving heart. So turn back to 1 Samuel with me, if you would. And we come to chapter 8, and there's a crisis. Uh, first of all, there's an external crisis, and the, the narrator doesn't mention this, but later in the, the, the text, we, as we see Saul interacting with the, with the Ammonites, we recognize that there's a political, uh, kind of this external crisis taking place. But there's also and this is what the narrator does draw our attention to, there's also a time of internal crisis within God's people. Look look what the text says. It's it's very sad, right? Samuel's older, and he makes a very poor decision here. He decides that this, this position of judgeship will be hereditary, and so he makes his sons judges. And his sons have some significant character issues, right? It says that they did not, verse 3, walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They they take bribes and they pervert justice. And these are things that Scripture warns us again, over and over again, right? CSV Study Bible says, when leaders use their office for self-enrichment and as a result distort their decisions, they betray the fundamental purpose of of judges and are a danger in all societies, and such practices are denounced over and over in the Bible. And so, I hope you feel some sympathy for these elders, these, these people who are in position of leadership over the people. They they come to Samuel and they they recognize that Samuel has done a lot of good things. They they love Samuel, and yet at the same time, they recognize that he has made a really bad decision with these these leaders that he is appointed over them in his sons. And so he comes. To, they come to him, they say, look, uh, Samuel, and, and it must have been very hard to say this, look, Samuel, you're old. You're not going to be here forever. This is a time of crisis for us because your sons do not walk. They don't have the same practices that you do. And so... Here's what we want you to do. Now, so far, what they've said is right. They've they've, they've rightly diagnosed the crisis. But their solution is wrong. Their solution that they propose recognizes they don't trust God as their king. And and says they say, uh, "Give give us a king to judge us like all the nations. And so what they should have said is appoint for us a king that, Will be in submission to the Lord, but they say, We want this king, and we want to rely upon him to, to lead us. And it says, verse six, the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. This time of crisis reveals their unbelief. They they get the first part wrong, but their solution is or the, the first part right, but their solution is wrong. Principle here is is pretty simple, right? Bad leaders in times of crisis produce more bad leaders. These, These leaders in a time of crisis don't trust the Lord, and so they're bad leaders, and they then produce another bad leader now. My conviction, as we think about the people of God, my conviction is that a lot of bad church practices are the reaction to other bad church practices. In other words, we're, we're in a time of crisis, something bad is happening, and instead of responding with a heart of faith and doing what God has called us to do, we kind of just swing the pendulum. So for example, in kind of my early formative years of, of ministry, there was kind of this, this push for really like aggressive leaders, right? We, we looked at the culture, and we saw these, these young men who were not exercising well, they weren't exercising they weren't anything really and so the the church said okay we, we need these we need these strong leaders instead of saying okay what does God say a leader like a leader is supposed to do in these situations we appealed to these these leaders that were calling for aggressive belligerent belittling others and and then what happened so we had those types of leaders and then the, the pendulum swung and we say okay well I guess we need weak leaders we need leaders who, who won't stand firm on the truth and the you know think about the church culture now which we're kind of responding to some of the the excesses of, of previous generations and just not responding rightly, right? The answer to one bad leader isn't another bad leader. But in a time of crisis, we don't have believing hearts, we're going to tend to, to swing from one pendulum to another in terms of how to respond to a crisis. When I was, when we are planting the church, I had a, a pastor come to me, and not not, uh, not in the area, but he said, look, as he's talk, we're talking about how to set up a a structure in a church he says look don't let don't let any associate pastors become elders let them be staff pastors but keep keep them away from the elders so they don't try to to overthrow your authority and wh- where was that coming from that was coming from a place where he had been in a position where some associate pastors had kind of gotten to tangle with him and so he's saying well that wasn't good so what we need to do is this and, and there have been some elder meetings where i thought maybe that wouldn't have been a bad idea but no i'm just kidding uh it would have been a horrible idea, right? Because we need we need uh, people in positions of, of leadership who will engage in the plurality of leadership. We don't respond to one bad style of leadership by exalting another. But an oppressive leader in a church, in a community, is sometimes going to be the byproduct of a crisis colliding with an unbelieving heart. We need to watch our hearts in that. Here's the third thing, and this is the heart of the of the text, verses seven through 18, the third thing I want us to think about is this. A, an oppressive leader is self-serving, right? That's, that's the core issue here. An oppressive leader is a, a self-serving leader. As God talks about what's taking place, he, un, he understands what's going to happen and earlier, he says, solemnly warn them. That phrase, solemnly warn them, is a legal expression used there in verse 9. Uh, let them know this is what a king will, will do. And the bottom line is a king like the nations is going to act like a king of the nations. And God makes it clear look, the people, Samuel, are not rejecting you, they're rejecting me. Now, put yourself in the, the mind of a Canaanite king. So. The people of Israel are in the land of Canaan, and they're they're surrounded by Canaanite kings. And at this time, a Canaanite king would have been kind of like a a ruler of a a small area, kind of this geographic location. So not this this wide empire like we may think of kings today, but kind of this this smaller region. And a Canaanite king, this king of the nations, would have this understanding that the the kingship exists for me to be benefited. Uh, My authority is absolute, and... To serve me is to serve the people, and so acquiring wives, uh, obtaining land, I have the authority to do whatever I want, that's a king like the nations. A king of the nations is going to lead the people in his community to worship the gods of that region, and so gods were very localized, and so a Canaanite king, a king like the nations was going to lead the people to, to worship whatever gods were, were part of that community, and that's God's concern. Look at the text here we read earlier. And notice all the times the word take is used. There's two different Hebrew words that are are being translated here, but listen how the ESV translates it beginning in verse 11. These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons. Verse 12. He will appoint for himself commanders of thousands. Verse 13. He will take your daughters. Verse 14. He will take. The best of your fields. Verse 15, he will take a tenth of your grain. Verse 16, he will take your male servants. Verse 17, he will take the tenth of your flocks. This is an oppressive leader. The heart, here's the principle the heart of the oppressor in leadership is convinced that the purpose of their position is to be served. Or to put it another way, how many times do we see the word take there? To put it another way, the heart of an oppressive leader is to take, 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 take. And that is our own heart temptation as well, right? Brothers and sisters, our hearts are so deceitful here, right? Our hearts are so deceitful. All of us struggle with this. Here's a couple of ways. Let me, let me give you three ways that your hearts can deceive you, the way our hearts can deceive us. Number one, one of the ways that our hearts can deceive us is it can convince us that what's good for us is also what God wants. In other words, to, to put those things very tightly together. What, what we want is the same thing as what God What's good for us, what benefits me, what, what serves me is also what God wants. God wants people to respect their their shepherds, so it's good that people respect me and then give me what I want, maybe particularly in some sort of decision that people are disagreeing with. I'm in a meeting, I'm with my kids, I'm overseeing a a staff, and, and I begin to think, well, I'm in this position of leadership and so What's, what's good for me is going to be what God wants as well. Now, now sometimes it's tricky, and sometimes maybe leaders do want some good things, but sometimes our, our hearts twist this around and say, okay, to, to serve me so I can serve others is what God wants. Or you begin to say this, to, we kind of twist it a little further, to oppose me is to oppose God, or to disagree with my decision is to oppose God himself. It gets really messy really quickly. Sometimes... Sometimes our hearts deceive us into believing that what's good for us is exactly what God wants. Another way that our hearts tricks us, another way the heart deceives us, number two, is by convincing us that an ungodly method is an appropriate way to accomplish a good end. So we have this goal, and, and this is a good goal, but we begin to think that it's, it's OK for me to engage in some ungodly, unbiblical methods in order to accomplish that goal. We're going to talk about this more in a, a few weeks, but, but maybe, for example, um, m- maybe there's a, a person that's on a committee, and you're, you're serving this committee, and, and, and this person is, is serving as this obstacle for this good thing that you want to do, and so you begin to engage in some, some gossip. You begin to kind of try to figure out ways to get around that person, because this person, in your mind, represents an obstacle to God's will. set Mar- Marcus Honeyset, in the book that I mentioned earlier discusses the temptation we, we face to move from legitimate to illegitimate authority and this is this is the heart of a, a king like the nations and he, he says you know why is this so tempting well ambition some of us are ambitious some of us have a desire to, to please people and and we're con- we have these consumers, and we got to give them what they want, and so we're going to use some illegitimate means to, to get to the, the end that we want, or, or maybe we're just frustrated with people. We're just frustrated with these people who are standing in the way of what God wants, and so we begin to do some very wrong things to accomplish what might be some good ends. And, and here's, uh, I hope, by the way, we see the arrogance of that, right? You have a, a person who's opposing you in your shepherding and they're accusing you of, of some things and so to to prove them wrong, you're going to do some wrong things. It doesn't make sense, does it, right? Honey set goes on, he says leaders use their power. You see this happening, one, they they manipulate to gain control over structures and, and policies and procedures. You know, they put themselves on all the boards. They they, they make a system where all approval has to go through them. They make sure they have ultimate veto power. They establish, they have this board that's, that's getting in their way, so what do they do? They establish a new board that's over that other board so they can get what they, they want. Or another way that they do this, they remove checks and balances on themselves. So even if there's no formal authority that's greater than than, than this, this board that's giving them problems or, or whatever, no one can meaningfully challenge them because they have, They've designed this, this system where they, they can't be checked. Or they gain control over enough people through relationships or, or pressuring people, bulldozing, bulldozing people is how Honey describes it. And, and it's hard to stand up against these leaders. And they, they become inaccessible except to a small group of leadership. And you can think over the last decades of the evangelical church life, you see this again and again and again. And in the worst cases, we're going to talk about how not every leader is in the bad bucket or the good bucket. All of us have these temptations and and at times struggle in different ways. But in the worst cases, Honey Set mentions something called Darvo. This is what the most egregious offenders do here. It's kind of an acronym, Darvo. One, you deny anything wrong. Two, you a, you attack the challenger. And then finally you reverse the victim and offender you deny anything you attack the challenger and you claim that you yourself is a victim and they're the offender brothers and sisters all of us are on a apart from god's grace and whatever shepherding we we, we, we find ourselves in from bathroom monitor to ceo pastor in a church sunday school teacher care group whatever, we all have that heart temptation don't we the final way that our heart tricks us is by causing us to dismiss legitimate authority in our lives. Maybe you're in a situation where you've been burned before, you've had a hard situation in a a church or with with a parent or with a boss, and so you begin to just say, no authority, right? I've been burned too many times, you don't have a right to speak into my life, and, and you fail to receive God's grace in providing you shepherds who will care for you. That's also a way in which our heart can trick us and the enemy can can mess with our heads in some very significant ways now again remember the goal of this we want to protect our own hearts from this we want to confess our sins and we want to protect bethany community church and help us avoid this right now one more point point. one more thing i want us to, to say is we, we think about an oppressive leader's self-serving this will kind of springboard into we, when we come back in this passage in two weeks If you have been in a situation or are in a situation right now at Bethany or, or in another place where a leader has been oppressive, abusing their position of leadership, this isn't a Matthew 18 uh, situation, right? So Matthew 18 tells us someone sins against you, go to that person and, and work it out. So so for example, if, if I've sinned against you in our relationship, just interpersonally, I... I um, with so many things you could point to. Uh, you know, I, I, I failed to, um, I, I failed to uh, be, be kind to you in a situation, and, and I was just rude about something. You, you, uh, just, just talking to you, you come to me and say, hey, Daniel, you're rude. I'm, oh, I'm sorry, and so we, we deal with that. But if, if I or another leader in a church abuse, our, uh, uh, abuse my, my, my situation as a pastor, you don't, you don't have to just come to me, right? In fact, that can sometimes be a dangerous thing to do. Because if a person has been oppressive, they can, they can work around it. What do you do? You can go to other leaders. That's not gossip in this situation. It's a 1 Timothy 5 situation. So you say, okay, look, uh, you go to another elder. Look, this is what I'm, I'm seeing. This is what happened. I, I need your help here to deal with it. Or it doesn't even have to be another elder. It can be a, a spiritually mature person. You're not going with them to say, look, I want to tell you how bad Daniel is. You're saying, look, this is a situation. I need you to help me biblically think about how to handle this. That's, I think that's very important to understand godly leaders point us to christ worldly leaders do not at the core of worldly oppressive leadership is the conviction that leaders exist to be served instead of served by laying down their lives for others the reason this is so important is what in our positions of leadership as a mom as a dad as a pastor as a sunday school teacher we want to point people to Jesus. We want people to understand that our Lord did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but but gave of himself. And the beauty of the gospel message is that our great king came, lived a perfect life, and died on the cross for our sins. And if our ministries minimize that gospel message God help us we want by our service to others in whatever positions God has placed whatever influence he's given we want people to see over and over again the beauty of the gospel the beauty of our great king dying for us and I think I speak for all of us we have failed in significant ways which brings us to the hope of the Lord's Supper we're going to partake of together this morning. Let me pray for us as we prepare our hearts to do that. Father, we thank you for the Lord's table that we're about to participate in together. Lord, as as we come to partake, we pray that you would help us grasp the truths of the gospel, a king dying for us. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. What hope do you have of healing from oppressive leadership? And more importantly, what hope is there for those of us who want to be gentle shepherds? Behold the lamb as we partake of his supper. Uh, Thomas Watson calls the Lord's Supper a visible sermon. And as we look to the bread, as we consume the bread and consume the cup, There are wonderful truths about the the cross of the Christ that are seen and proclaimed in the supper. First, what do we see? As we take the bread together, it reminds us of the broken body of Christ. Whatever failings you've had, whatever failings you've had as a shepherd, whatever failings you've had, we, we look to the broken bread and we say, okay, this is the standard. This is the shepherd. The shepherd's body was broken for his sheep. This is, this is my model. This is, this is who I desire to be like. This is who I desire to emulate. This is who I desire to point to others to. And so if you would take the bread with me. On the night that he was betrayed, after he'd given thanks, Jesus said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. As we partake of the body, then we see the perfection of our savior, though the perfection of his heart of service, his heart of sacrifice. But as we see that and think of that, we also are reminded of our own failures, right? We're reminded of our failures and his perfect, complete blood sacrifice that covers and cleanses all of our sin. The cup reminds us of the blood of Christ. It's a visible sermon for us that we receive by faith, reminding us of his perfect sacrifice. And as we consume the, the bread, as we partake of the cup, it also reminds us of our union with him. We are not the shepherds we need to be, but we are united by faith with our great shepherd who is paid on the cross the penalty of all our sins and who so is prepared to partake of the cup with me. The same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Drink this in remembrance of me. And so we proclaim the death and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ until he returns. Let's pray. Father, our only hope in life and death is you. We pray that you would protect us from our hearts, from the sin that so easily entangles us. We pray that as we looked to you, we, we would be filled with the desire to be not just forgiven by you, but, but to forgive others and to to model the forgiveness we've received. We're aware of our shortcomings, but we're also aware of your, your boundless grace, and we come before you, not on the basis of our own perfection this morning, but upon the infinite perfection of our sacrifice, Jesus Christ, with whom we are united by faith. We pray this in his name. Amen. Amen. I'm going to invite you to stand with me as we close, and we're going to sing.